practicing gratitude for this little light. Good afternoon, everyone. This is a gratitude session, talk four. Each moment of our lives is a gift. It's a grace arising, unbidden. Thomas Merton says, to be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything given us, and everything is given to us. Every breath we draw is a gift of love. Every moment of existence is a grace. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakening to new wonder and to the praise of the goodness of the universe. For the ungrateful person, for the grateful person knows that the universe is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that is what makes all the difference. We live in constant dependence upon this merciful kindness of the universe, and thus our whole life is a life of gratitude, a constant response to this help which comes to us at every moment. The last day I, I read this lovely little teaching verse about the lilies of the field, and I, I'd just like to expand a little bit because I just cut a snippet out of it more fully. It says, don't worry so much about the future and don't be so anxious about your life, about what might or might not happen. Don't worry so much about food. Whatever we need in this life comes to us, like the birds and the animals. Isn't life much more than food and clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither plant or harvest, and yet they eat. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you so anxious about the future? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin thread for cloth, yet I tell you, even King Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I used to be a tax lawyer, and it seems a long time ago now, but one thing I was pretty clear of when I was a tax lawyer, I never had anybody, I can honestly say, I never in, in 20 years of tax practice, I never had anybody come into my office and ask me to voluntarily pay some tax that they didn't have to pay in advance or pay some tax in advance just because they might have to later. It might have happened, some, but I just can't imagine. I've never seen it happen. But it's funny. That's exactly what we do, right? exactly what we do. We tax our lives with forethought of grief. We suck the joy out of our life day by day in advance, worrying about what's going to happen in the future. We levy this tax on the appreciation of our lives, worrying about ang and anxious about what our lives might bring. Anxieties, hmm. common to everybody, I think, that has their this horizontal eyes and vertical nose, as Dogen Zenji said. The Buddha himself also experienced anxiety about the future. He was just a guy. That's the amazing thing I find about it. He wasn't. He never said, "I'm some god" or anything. He was. He was just like the rest of us. All the same stuff. You know? And he said, I, I also experience anxiety about the future. 
that I experienced anxiety about uncertainty and fear. He experienced aversion to his bodily experiences and how things were, aversion to pain. I'm always moved at the end of his life, this 80-year-old man you know, walking up and down the Ganges River Valley through the jungle, you know, this wild jungle at the time. And he says, you know, he said, the only time I was free from pain was in deep samadhi. Ananda used to massage his back. He experiences pain, fear about what might happen in his life. And before he became the Buddha, he experienced fear. One sutra talks about how he practiced with fear and aversion while living and practicing at night in the jungle before he realized himself. And to appreciate at this time, still in India, but at that time, um, northern India, that area, there's tigers and leopards and rhinos and wild elephants and poisonous snakes. But he realized that the antidote to the fear, to the anxiety, was to face his fear and aversion, not to try to get away from it, but to sit with the experience of it until it passed experiencing it deeply in the body. He said, I considered thus. Now, what if during the nighttime I were to dwell in such awe-inspiring, horrifying abodes as orchard shrines, woodland shrines, and tree shrines? Perhaps I might encounter fear and dread. And later on, I did dwell in such awe-inspiring, horrifying modes, horrifying abodes as orchard shrines, woodland shrines, tree shrines. And while I dwelt there, a wild animal would come up to me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind might rustle the leaves. And I thought, what now if this is the fear and dread coming? And I thought, why do I dwell always expecting fear and dread? What if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture that I'm in when it comes upon me without moving? While I walked, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither stood nor stand nor lay down, but kept walking until I subdued that fear and dread. While I stood, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked nor sat nor lay down, but kept standing until I subdued that fear and dread. While I sat, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked, nor stood, nor lay down, but continued to sit until I subdued that fear and dread. And when I lay down, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked, nor stood, nor sat down, but continued to lie down until I'd subdued that fear and dread. Same as all of us. Realized that the antidote was to face his fear and aversion. Not in some kind of macho type way, but not to try to get away from it, to, to steel himself against it, but to sit deeply with the experience of it until it passed. experiencing it in the body. The Dharma gate of aimlessness, the gate of liberation of aimlessness, is letting go of aversion and anxiety and struggle. Easy to say, right? Easy to say. Letting go of dissatisfaction, wanting things to be different than they are. Letting go of chasing after what we think we need to make us happy. Trying to hold on to what can't be held on to. Trying to store up treasure to keep ourselves safe. Building some safe, cozy little nest or a fortress maybe. A big army to protect me. How do you protect yourself against impermanence? Against the inevitability of time? Old 
age, death, separation. Can you entertain yourself long enough to ignore these inevitabilities? The inevitability of time, old age, death, and separation. Everything is just passing through this present moment. We're just passing through this present moment. We're fundamentally of the nature of impermanence. That's what we are. We're fundamentally of the nature of impermanence. We don't see ourselves that way. We see ourselves as continuing from moment to moment. There's a me. I was writing my talk. Now I've come in here. Now I'm doing this. Now I'm going to do that. But we're of the nature of impermanence. We can't know what's going to happen next. And there's no way to stop the tide of impermanence. It's what we are. So when we forget this, when we forget that we can't know what's going to happen next, that we start to struggle and fight, cling, get anxious, get irritated and angry, and suffer, round and round like a dog chained to a stake. We think we have to get somewhere, make something out of things, accomplish something, get ahead. So this Dharma gate of aimlessness is to just let go. It's okay to be you without running or striving or searching or struggling. Not living now for then, not living provisionally, not looking to trade up, just appreciative of this moment, just being, living with appreciation of this moment, giving yourself up to it. We had a, watched a movie in the Sangha at North Shore Zendo couple of weeks ago and there was a, a lovely little life koan in the movie. The koan was, when am I not myself? 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 It's kind of a crazy question at first blush, isn't it? Kind of a crazy question. You say, well, how could I ever be anything other than myself? When am I not myself? We love to talk about the self in Zen. We love to talk about it. Small self, big self, deluded self, enlightened self, genuine self, small mind, big mind, boundless mind. Dogen Zenji says, revere the person of complete attainment who is beyond all human agency. Revere the person of complete attainment who is beyond all human agency. Is that imaginable? Does that mean you're dead? I mean, beyond all human agency? What's that mean? I'm not doing anything. I don't go to the bathroom anymore. What's that mean? Which self is that? Human agency is also beyond human agency. Being persons of thusness, when do we not manifest thusness? When am I not myself? Yet, thinking, 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 scheming, storytelling, throwing this big cognitive net of concepts and control over the experience of this present moment. It cuts me off from the direct, intimate experience of my life. Trying to protect myself, keep myself safe, storing up treasure, 
building a Nastra fortress, entertaining myself. Precious Mirror Samadhi says, just a hair's breadth deviation and you're out of step. When am I not myself? What is this self? How do I create this self? Who am I? We need to realize, we need to see for ourselves the truth of impermanence. And you know, it just ain't a hell of a lot of help to read about it or understand it or anything else. You've got to see it. You've got to see that this moment is flowing. You have to see that there ain't no things in this endo. <laughs> there ain't no things here. Like you can, I can natter on about all I want, but it, it ain't going to help you. It's just no help at all, for me anyway. You have to see it. You have to make it real. It has to be your world. It has to be genuine. Realize we can't stop the tide by force of arms or buy it off with treasure to pretend it isn't happening by entertaining ourselves. Realize it. If you really realize that, if you really see the truth of that. And you know, I have to tell you, in all honesty, I kid myself sometimes that I've really seen the truth of it. And then I find myself out storing up treasure and you know, laying up arms and bit by bit maybe, bit by bit. But we realize it when we realize it bit by bit. We realize that the only true refuge is the Dharma. The truth of the Dharma doesn't change. Taking refuge in this boundless mind of awareness the unborn, underlying, out of which arises each moment of our life. Still at peace, beyond concepts and understanding, infinite. We're taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, the teachings, of course, but the real teachings can't be spoken. The real teachings are drinking a cup of tea and sitting on the toilet, taking refuge in this present moment, like the lilies of the field, taking refuge in this journey of your life, in this very present moment, and all of the myriad array of things presenting themselves what we need to engage and attend to is always presenting itself. Being persons of thusness, we practice thus. Taking refuge in the Sangha, the left hand washing the right hand, raising up the mind of love and compassion, raising up the intention to be of service, to benefit others. How can I help you? It's one thing to talk about compassion. It's one thing to talk about loving kindness. But it comes down to how can I help you? How can I be of service? Not trying to fix things. I'm a great fixer of things. I drive people crazy. You know, and if they, if they have a problem with that, well, I can fix that attitude too. You know, it's like the, uh, it's a funny thing. We, we have this idea that there's something wrong with things and that we have the idea about how they should be and then we set out to try to bring reality into or what we perceive to in accord with our idea of how things should be. You know, there's, mm, there's too many cars. We need to get rid of some of those cars. Or there's not enough cars. Or So not trying to fix things, not working to try to get the world to match some picture I have about how it should be, but just responding. Responding to need as it presents itself. 
holding the biggest view possible and being as practical as possible. Holding the biggest view possible and having a very practical, practical mind. We express our gratitude for the Buddha Dharma by putting the teachings of the Buddha Dharma into practice. We turn the Dharma wheel with our practice and the Dharma wheel turns us. We turn the Dharma wheel and the Dharma wheel turns us. And it's a mystery how it works. It's truly a mystery. There's an old Sufi story about why the beggar man begs. So, we've seen it, seen it in Asia many times. Some seriously disabled person, apparently unable to walk, sitting in the gutter, crying, crying out, Bakshish, Bakshish, give me some Bakshish, please give me, who will give me, please, please give me Bakshish. Some give nothing. Some give a bit. Some give a lot. And he praises each one. He praises them all. And he asks that God bless them. And at the end of the day, he rises up from his seat, straightens his legs, walks normally, not disabled at all, walks to the temple, and deposits his day's alms in the donation box, and then goes home to his middle-class house and his wife. Why does the beggar man beg? He begs for me and he begs for thee. And there's a sweet little story, true story, I think. This is from this ancient book by Paul Reps. Is when Sesetsu was the master of Engaku, I can never do these Japanese names, I'm sorry, Engaku in Kamakura, he required larger quarters since those in which he was teaching were overcrowded. Umezu Sebe, a merchant of Edo, decided to donate 500 pieces of gold called Ryo towards the construction of a more commodious school. And he brought the money to the teacher. And the teacher says, all right, I'll take it. And the merchant gave the teacher the sack of gold. But the teacher didn't say anything. He just took it. And the merchant was dissatisfied with the teacher's attitude. You could live a whole year on, on three rio. And the merchant hadn't even been thanked for 500 rio. The merchant said, he said, in that sack of 500 rio of gold, teacher said, yeah, you told me that before. And he said, well, he said, even if I'm a wealthy merchant, 500 rio is a lot of money. And the teacher said, do you want me to thank you for it? Is that it? And the merchant said, well, you ought to. And the teacher said, why should I? The giver should be thankful. Another story from Ikkyu, a very similar story, this great wild Zen poet, Ikkyu, who one time was coming home from a party, and uh, he'd, the host had packaged up this lovely bento box of stuff, wrapped it all up in cloth, and he's coming home, and Ikkyu, fil filled with uh, love of life going along, came across this beggar by the side of the road, and the uh, beggar was asking for alms, and EQ gave him the box and kind of stopped and waited and the beggar took the box and he looked and he waited and he waited and finally said, aren't you going to say thank you? And the beggar said, thank you, but surely you got something more than that out of it. 
the Dharma wheel turns us and we turn the Dharma wheel. It's those in need that provide the opportunity for us to realize and practice gratitude and generosity. The Buddha once said, if you could see like I do the inestimable value of a single act of generosity, you would never pass by a single opportunity to give. In this Ango period at the monastery, this period of intensified practice, the study text is Keizan Zenji's Transmission of the Light, that beautiful exposition of the enlightenment stories of the great masters. And moved by those stories, because just like us, they were just ordinary people, two eyes and ears, suffered pain in their backs and knees when sitting, crazy minds, emotions running wild. Grateful. I'm grateful for all of their strenuous practice. Breaking their bones, it's sometimes said, not for their own benefit, but for our benefit and the benefit of the Dharma itself. What are these bones that we have to break practicing the Dharma? What are the bones? Sometimes it feels like my knee bones are breaking, but I don't think those are the bones you're talking about. Practicing the Dharma, not with some gaining idea, not as some instrumentality to get themselves to some happy place. Not practicing the Dharma as a tool to, oh, I'm so unhappy, how do I get myself happy? But to give life to life, moment by moment. Continuous practice, continuous practice, not with some gaining idea, but for the benefit of others. Being the nature of what is, they respond to what is. And it's their practice. It's the practice of Maizumi Roshi, Osaka Koryo Roshi, Bayan Hokujun Roshi, Hakuin Ryoko Roshi. Capro Roshi. It's their practice that's brought this precious Dharma to us today. And with our own Zazen practice, we honor their practice and we express our gratitude for their practice. We turn the Dharma wheel with our practice and then the Dharma wheel turns us served by all of the ancestors, and we serve them through our practice. In the Tenzo Kyokan, Dogen Zenji says, we need to do at least as well as the old masters. He said, when you prepare food, this is in the Tenzo Kyokan, where he he's, takes up this lovely metaphor for a life of practice, um, using the metaphor of the Tenzo, the cook in the kitchen. How do we cook our lives? And he says, when you prepare food, never view the ingredients from some commonly held perspective. Never think about them only with your emotions. Maintain an attitude that tries to build great temples from ordinary greens that expounds the Buddha Dharma through the most trivial activity. When making a soup with ordinary greens, don't be carried away by feelings of dislike towards them, nor regard them lightly, nor jump for joy simply because you've been given ingredients of superior quality to make a special dish. By the same token, you don't indulge in a meal because of its particularly good taste. There's also no reason to feel an aversion towards an ordinary one. Don't be negligent and careless just because the materials seem plain and you hesitate to work more diligently with materials of superior quality. Well, you kind of have some sense of that in your zazen practice, right? Oh man, this period is just plain greens. When do I get to the good stuff? When do I get to the cake? Strengthen your resolve and devote your life spirit to surpassing the refinement of the ancient patriarchs and being even more meticulous than those who came before you. How do we apply our life aspirations so it'll function for the way? 
If great teachers in the past were able to make a plain soup with greens for only a pittance, we must try to make a fine soup for the same amount. This is very difficult to do. We must aspire to the highest of ideals without becoming arrogant in our manner. These things are truly just a matter of course, yet we remain unclear about them because our minds go racing about like horses running wild in the fields while our emotions remain unmanageable like monkeys swinging in the trees. If only we stepped back to carefully reflect on the horse and the monkey, our lives would naturally become one with our work. Doing so is the means whereby we turn things even while simultaneously we are turned by them. How do we express our gratitude? How do we express our gratitude? Dogen Zenji says, continuous practice day after day is the most appropriate way of expressing gratitude. He says, most ways of expressing gratitude may miss the mark. Giving up the life of your body is not enough. Wow. A castle is not solid enough, as it can be taken by others or given away to a family. The life of the body can be given to impermanence, a lord or a crooked way. Therefore, none of these are suitable offerings. Continuous practice, day after day, is the most appropriate way of expressing gratitude. This means you practice continuously without wasting a single day of your life, without using it for your own sake. Why is it so? It's so because your life is a fortunate outcome of continuous practice from the past. You should express your gratitude immediately. How sad and shameful to waste this body which has benefited from the continuous practice of Buddha ancestors by becoming a slave of family, surrendering to their and your own vanities without noticing the fall. Or the body may be mistakenly given to that horrendous robber, the demon of fame and gain. If ever you value fame and gain, then be compassionate to fame and gain. If you're compassionate to fame and gain, you'll not allow them to break the body that can become a Buddha ancestor. Being compassionate to family and relatives is also like this. Do you think that fame and gain are phantoms and illusions? Do not think that fame and gain are phantoms and illusions, but regard them as sentient beings. If you're not compassionate to fame and gain, you will accumulate unwholesome actions. The true eye of study should be like this. Thoughtful people in the world express gratitude for receiving gold, silver, or rare treasures. They also express gratitude for receiving kind words. Who can forget the great gift of seeing and hearing the Tathagata's unsurpassable true dharma, being aware that this in itself is a rare treasure of a lifetime. The bones and skulls of those who do not turn back from this continuous practice are enshrined in seven treasure pagodas, receiving respect and offerings by humans and devas. When you become aware of such a great gift, you should attentively repay the mountain of benevolence without allowing your life to disappear like a dewdrop on the grass. This is continuous practice. The power of this practice is that you yourself practice as an ancestral Buddha. Taking refuge, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is the essence of our bodhisattva practice. Taking refuge is truly the practice of liberation and freedom. Not freedom to, but freedom from. Freedom from a tormented suffering minds, freedom from craving, freedom from clinging, freedom from aversion, freedom from ignorance and confusion. Taking refuge is the practice of gratitude. Expressing gratitude, we take refuge. Expressing gratitude, we practice appreciation for our lives. Expressing gratitude, we naturally practice generosity. Experience gratitude, we express this bodhisattva practice this bodhisattva path. 
What's a bodhisattva? These enlightenment beings grounded in this aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings, to serve all beings, to awaken all beings. We have a different phrasing in our tradition, in the Mahayana tradition, in Buddha's Eightfold Path. The way of the bodhisattva is grounded in the four bodhisattva vows that we chant. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to embody it. You know, I don't know why it is, but some people just never get the hang of being happy. It's true. And there's no wonder, maybe. As long as we're looking at things from our perspective of I, me, and mine, we're pretty much bound to be dissatisfied and unhappy. This merry-go-round of desire and dissatisfaction, things are never the way I want them to be, this poor me, this poor separate me. I see myself as a separate me, this body or inside this body, tossed and turned by the fates. What's there to be thankful for? I have it so hard. Some people, it seems, have a heavenly realm read about them sometimes, may know some, but old age, death, and separation come to us all. And I don't mean to diminish the challenges of the body in saying this stuff, or the painfulness of emotions, mine or anybody else's. I sometimes say it's easy to talk in platitudes when you're sitting in the zendo. Quite a different matter if your kids are sick or you're living in poverty or you're lonely and miserable. Sometimes not so easy in the zendo either. Pain in the body, emotional distress, racing mind. These challenges are very real and very painful, but we compound them with our reactivity. It's our reactivity to these challenges that can be seen through. There's a joy in this bodhisattva practice of gratitude. Looking out. As soon as we look in, as soon as we start looking in at this I, me, and mine, it's always going to come up short. Always failing, always inadequate, not as good as not the way it should be, should be more of this, should be less of that. It's always a problem. But when we look out, we dissolve into the service of others. Dissolve into the joy of charity. Being served by others and serving others in turn. This is again the way Dogen Zenji says it in the Tenzo Kyoka. says, how fortunate we are to have been born as human beings, given the opportunity to prepare meals for the three treasures, for Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Our attitude should truly be one of joy and gratefulness. We should also reflect on what our lives might have been had we been born in one of the realms of hell, as a hungry ghost, as some lowly animal, or as a demon. How difficult our lives would be if we suffered the misfortune of these four circumstances or any other the eight misfortunate conditions. We'd be unable to practice the Dharma with the strength of the community, even though we had a mind to do so. Much less would we be able to prepare food with our own hands and offer it to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Our bodies and minds would be bound by the limitations and afflictions of those worlds, and we'd have to suffer their burden. Therefore, rejoice in your birth into the world 
we are capable of using your body freely to make offerings to the three treasures with your practice. Considering the innumerable possibilities in a timeless universe, we've been given a marvelous opportunity. The merit of working as a Tenzo, decay of continuous practice, will never decay. My sincerest desire is that you exhaust all the strength and effort of all your lives, past, present, and future, and every moment of every day into your practice through the work of the Tenzo so that you form a strong connection with the Buddha Dharma. To view all things with this attitude is called joyful mind. It all comes into our hands to make something out of it. Moment by moment, we're presented with circumstances that ask us to make something out of them, to bring them alive. Come play with me, Hova. Come play with me. And ask us to bring them alive, to give it away, to serve. Who serves you? Who do you serve? What is the food we eat in service of? Depends on what you do with it, doesn't it? We're not missionaries, and we don't need to seek out these opportunities of service. Our ordinary, everyday lives presents our field of practice moment by moment. That's what we're called to do. We're always looking for the grand show. I'll make a grand show of it. I used to. There's a Tibetan teaching, you know, Lojong teaching, that says, beware of outrageous conduct. You, know, you take up the bodhisattva practice, the bodhisattva path, and then you want to, I'm going to go and chain myself to a tree now, or I'm going to go and uh, sacrifice myself. I'm going to set fire to myself and protest against. Beware of outrageous conduct. the path of the bodhisattva, we have these four vows and the six paramita practices. Practice of charity, of giving, generosity. Practice of the precepts, of ethical conduct. I say the practice of precepts and ethical conduct. I think it's really identity action. It's a practice of seeing others as yourself. The practice of patience and forbearance practice of energy and determination, practice of meditation, and the practice of wisdom. So this prajna wisdom we're talking about here isn't something we learn or know or we write down in a book. Someone has a lovely expression. Sometimes he says, it's not something you could write in a letter and send it off to Baltimore. <laughs> no. uh, it's a matter of it isn't a matter of having some good idea about how to fix things. It's the insight that manifests in a meditation practice. It's the seeing directly. It's a wisdom of non-duality, but it's seeing directly. It's seeing that there are no things in this zendo. Wei Wei Nung said it's that prajna arises with meditation, that prajna and meditation are two aspects of the same thing, like a lamp and its light. This prajna wisdom isn't something that we cultivate and then file away in a little gold and crystal casket somewhere. Oh, I've got it now. Put it under lock and key and save it treasure it. I'll look at it every once in a while and remind myself. This prajna wisdom isn't worth much unless it's put into practice for the benefit of others. Unless we make it real through our service of others. Having seen, how could you not be of service? When we see that we're all leaves on the same tree, we all share a common root. How could we not serve where our life directs us? How could we not serve this present moment? 
not in some big flashy, showy way, but in the day-to-day living of our lives. It's sometimes said that prajna is the eye of the paramita, E-Y-E, eye of the paramita. Seeing how things are, seeing the absolute and the practical at the same time, responding to things as they present themselves. How can I help you? What's this situation asking of me? What's called for here? Giving a bottle of whiskey to an alcoholic might not be such a great gift. There's an old saw that says, a bird needs two wings to fly. The one wing is wisdom, the other wing is compassion. Dogen Zenji has, in one of his fascicles in the Shobogenzo, says that there are four essential practices of a bodhisattva. First is the practice of giving. Second is the practice of kind speech. Third is the practice of benefiting others. And fourth is identity action. A lot of ways I think they're the same practice, aren't they? And these practices... And the practices of the paramitas are the practice of gratitude. Flowing with conditions like water running downhill. This practice of giving, this practice of charity, has many different facets. What do we give? Well, of course we give material gifts. Food, medicine, shelter. The Buddha said, hunger is the worst kind of illness, and the gift of food is the gift of life. When the wheel of the Dharma turns well, the wheel of the supply of food turns itself. The second traditionally gift that we recognize, category of gift, is the gift of removing fear. I would add to that the gift of attention and love. The gift of attention and love. The essence of the gift is our intention. So my mom lives in a assisted living place. I love going there as a place of practice. It's so powerful. And I see these people that are so lonely, just looking in their eyes, just wanting somebody to touch them, looking out, can you see me? I'm here. Mother Teresa said, the worst kind of illness is to feel neither desired nor loved, to feel abandoned. Medicine can cure the body's illnesses, but the only cure for loneliness and despair is love. It's possible to die from hunger, but it's easier to die from a lack of love. Most significant, though, is the gift of the Dharma. Over and over in the sutras, we read that the supreme gift is the gift of the Dharma. And of course, This includes the teaching. Of course it includes the teaching. But the gift of the Dharma is much more than giving Dharma talks and offering sanzen. Each of us here, each person in this room, is offering the gift of the Dharma through our zazen practice, through work practice, through kindness and compassion, through vows. The essence of a gift is that there's no expectation of something coming back to you. When we give, when we give with the expectation of something coming back, the gift takes on a different quality. It becomes a transaction, we would say, a law. Sometimes it can cease to be a gift altogether, just trying to manipulate in some way. 
becomes just another way of trying to get something out of the practice, spiritual materialism. That doesn't mean don't give. (laughs) Yeah, we're all of us just human beings. It doesn't mean don't give because you have mixed motives to your practice. Oh, my motivation and intention is impure, so I'll wait to give until I'm a perfectly realized being. I won't practice patience until I'm perfectly realized and don't need to be patient anymore. I won't practice zazen until I can enter the non-dual at will. Crazy. We're all of us just imperfect human beings. We do the best we can with things. Practicing kindness, we become kindness. No act of kindness is ever wasted. No act done with a kind intention. There's an old saying that it's easier to give than to receive. To receive a gift, to complete the gift, it has to be received. It can be difficult not to judge the appropriateness of the gift. Oh, that's too generous. Oh, she needs that. She can't afford that. Oh, I'll be obligated now. Tough practice, this receiving. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. It's easy to say to a peanut butter morning or to smell a fresh coffee. But it's a little bit different matter with the hard things, isn't it? Dealing with your challenging friends, pain, crazy mind, loneliness, abandonment. Again, Dogen Zenji offers us a model for this. Thank you very much in the hard times. Thank you very much with the challenging circumstances. He says, When is that Mount Tiantong, a monk named Lu from Qingwan, was serving as a Tenzo? One day after the noon meal, I was walking to another building within the complex when I noticed Lu driving mushrooms in, drying mushrooms in the sun in front of the Butsudan. He carried a bamboo stick, but he had no hat on his head. The sun's rays beat down so harshly that the tiles along the walk burnt one's feet. Lou worked hard and was covered with sweat. I couldn't help but feel the work was too much of a strain for him. His back was a bow drawn taut. His long eyebrows were crane white. I approached and asked his age. He replied that he was 68 years old. Probably an unimaginable age in those times in the 12th, 13th century in Japan, China. Then I went on to ask him why he never used any assistance. He answered, other people are not me. You're right, I said. I can see that your work is the activity of the Buddha Dharma. But why are you working so hard in this scorching sun? He replied, if I don't do it now, when else can I do it? There's nobody else that can do a zazen practice for. There's nobody else that can do this practice. Thank you very much. He met another monk. Came to buy mushrooms when he was on quarantine on the ship in harbor waiting to disembark. And an old monk who was about 60 years of age, came directly to the ship to buy mushrooms from the Japanese merchants on board. And I invited him for tea and asked him where he was from. He said he was a Tenzo at the monastery at Mount Iowang and added, I was originally from Zishu, although I left there about 40 years ago. I'm 61 this year, and I practiced in several Zen monasteries in this country. Last year, while living at Gu Yun, I, I visited the monastery at Mount Iowang, though I spent my time there totally confused as to what I was doing. Then after the summer practice this year, I was appointed Tenzo. Tomorrow's May 5th, but I have nothing special to offer the monks. I wanted to prepare noodle soup, but as I didn't have any mushrooms to put in it, I came here to buy some. 
I asked, when did you leave Iowine? He replied, after lunch. Is it far from here? About 14 miles. When will you go back to the temple? Well, I'm planning to return as soon as I bought the mushrooms. I can't imagine how fortunate I feel we were able to meet some meet unexpectedly like this. If it's possible, I wish you could stay a while longer and allow me to offer you something more. I'm sorry, but that's impossible just now. If I'm not there tomorrow to make the meal, it will not be made well. But surely there must be others in a place as large as Iowa who are capable of preparing the meals. They'll not be that inconvenienced if you aren't there, will they? I've been put in charge of this work in my old age. It is, so to speak, the practice of an old man. How can I entrust all that work to others? Moreover, when I left the temple, I didn't ask for permission to stay out overnight. But why, when you are so old, do you do the hard work of a tenso? Why do you spend your time practicing zazen or working on the koans? Is there something special to be gained from working particularly as a tenso? He burst out laughing and remarked, My good friend from abroad, you don't yet understand what practice is all about. Thank you very much. No complaints whatsoever. In the beautiful Shantideva poem we've been chanting um, in the evening, there's um, a line that invokes the wish that even an act of violence could be a source of enlightenment for the malefactor. In this spring, when I was traveling in India, I made I think I talked about this earlier this spring, but I made a pilgrimage to Kalinga, which is now part of Orissa on the east coast of India. And following, shortly following the time of the Buddha, it became a, a fabled kingdom, fantastic wealth and power. Ships sailed from Kalinga to all parts of Thailand and to Java, and they were uh, a fabulous uh, trading emperor, empire. And Emperor Ashoka, the last in a dynasty of conquering kings that had conquered pretty much all of India at that time, except for Kalinga. And he uh, sent an enormous army to conquer Kalinga because they wouldn't um, pay taxes. <laughs> and there was an enormous battle. And it's said that over 200,000 people died in that battle and that the rivers ran red with blood. Complete devastation. And it's said that following the battle, Ahsoka stood on the top of this hill and surveyed the battlefield, the mountains of dead and the destruction. And it's said that he observed a Buddhist monk walking mindfully across the battlefield, apparently at peace. And Ashoka suddenly realized the extent of the suffering and violence for which he was responsible. And it completely turned his mind around and altered the course of history. He converted to Buddhism and spent the rest of his lifetime propagating the Buddha Dharma governing his empire in accordance with it. He set up a series of pillars, these amazing polished granite pillars that even though they're you know, 2,500 years old, they look like they were just set up yesterday. And that has the uh, significant Buddha Dharma texts carved on them and set them up at key locations in different parts around India. He carved edicts on, on cliffs. He became a vegetarian. He passed all of these laws that were it's the first time that a kingdom had been governed in accordance with the Buddha Dharma. So this life of terrible violence ultimately opened into an era of peace and compassion and freedom previously unknown, still reverberating. Still reverberating. Over the millennia, empires come and go. And we can be sure that the same will happen again. How do you measure the right and wrong of events? Judging good and bad, the right and wrong of events. Suffering, well. 
We tax our lives with forethought and grief, worrying about what might be, resentful, blaming, comparing, complaining, sulking over what's been. We don't know. We can't know. We think we have some idea, this very idea that gives rise to the wanting, the clinging, the fear, the anger, the aversion that we feel in our body. And all the while, more of our lives are slipping away. This zazen practice of ours is a very challenging practice. The body isn't used to sitting for so long and it resists. Our thinking mind and our emotions are so used to having their way that they go into general rebellion. The more sincere your aspiration to practice and awaken, the stronger the mind's reactivity. When we practice sincerely, there inevitably comes times of intense anger, floods of tears, frustration, depression, anxiety, as the mind starts to soften, the practice starts to peel off some of the armor we've put on to shield ourselves from the pain of life, protect our quivering heart. Somebody once said, you haven't even started to practice until you've shed at least a bucket of tears in the zendo. I once read uh, this little passage by Jack Cornfield. He was talking about when he was practicing um, with Ajahn Chah in, uh, in Thailand. He went through this period of time where uh, as his arms, he started taking off his armor and he started to soften. He just, he became so angry. He wouldn't let anybody near his cootie. He'd start screaming at them and throwing things at them. That's how it has to be. Taking off this armor, we put on to shield ourselves from the pain of life and protect our quivering heart. It's a fundamental stage in practice. And in truth, it's a happy stage, but it doesn't feel happy when you're going through it. It's not easy getting born. It can also be very discomforting peeling off this dragon skin, this armor, and exposing that new pink skin underneath. The body develops aches and pains. The heart races. I used to become ill when I'd come to Sashin. Genuinely, apparently ill. About two days before it was time to go to Sashin, I'd come down. I'd get really, really sick. Start getting chills. I was getting the flu. I was, I'd get in the car and I'd drive down to Sashin. And somehow, you know, first day, all of a sudden I was better again. <laughs> it took me a long time to realize. The mind trying to shut down this process of awakening it isn't so sure about. We're in reaction to having an emotional abscess lanced that's been protecting. Is this practice hard? It sure can be. Sometimes blissful. Sometimes so easy, you think, oh, this is just going to continue forever. Uh, oop. <laughs> Sometimes so difficult. Is it worth it? Well, I can tell you, it brought me back alive when I thought I was dead. And I can honestly say that in 20 years of Dharma practice, 20 years of sitting Sashin, I've never known anybody to be unhappy having completed a session. That's something, maybe they're just avoiding it, I don't know. But Let's continue with this continuous practice of zazen, this bodhisattva practice that opens the eye of wisdom, this expression of gratitude. May all beings benefit from your diligent practice. Thank you.